And you may be seated. It's a wonderful crowd on a Sunday night. And you don't typically have Sunday night services. This is a tremendous crowd. I want you to see all the teenagers who are here tonight. Young people, if you're in junior high or high school or the university, stand up, would you? All of the teenagers. And let's give the Lord a hand for all these kids. Great to see you tonight. And you may be seated and behave yourself. Amen. It's good to see you and... You're just such a tremendous youth group and a great youth pastor, and I thank God for what he's doing here. I want you to take your Bible tonight. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Just look on with someone who's sitting around you. And I want you to turn to God's lost and found department. It's in Luke's gospel and the 15th chapter. Luke chapter 15. And someone has said that Luke chapter 15 is a trilogy of lostness. Because Jesus tells three stories about lost things. He talks about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. And I don't think that there is another passage in all of the Bible that gives us such an open view into the heart of God for a lost world as Luke chapter 15. So look at it in the Bible. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, Then drew near to him all the publicans and the sinners because they wanted to hear him. Now, everyone look here for just a moment. It always amazes me that when you read the Bible, the people who wanted to be the closest to Jesus were the people from the margins and the shadows of the society and the culture. The Bible calls them the sinners, and we might think of them as the people who have made a lot of mistakes in their life. We might talk about people who have been fallen into substance abuse or people who have searched through all the empty promises that the world makes them, that they'll be happy if they try this or that, and so they've run after all of these things only to find an emptiness at the end of life. And these are the people, the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, the people who are down and out. Every time Jesus came to town, they wanted to be around him. Let me tell you why. Because they knew that Jesus loved them and cared about them. You know, the Bible says Jesus is a friend to sinners. And if you're going to be a friend to Jesus... That means you're going to have to be a friend to sinners. And so they came running from the shadows and the margins because they had never heard anybody talk about God the way Jesus talked about God. All the other preachers and religious leaders and rabbis made God sound like he was far away and distant, living up on top of a mountain with a big baseball club in one hand, ready to beat him over the head every time they got out of line. That's the way the religious people made God sound, but not Jesus. Jesus talked about God as a loving father. When he talked about God, he made it sound, God, the kingdom of God, sound like a big house with a big table that had a big spread and there was room for everybody. And no matter what you'd done, God loved you and he welcomed you into this big, big house. 
And so all of the people who were the down and out, all of the people from the shadows and the margins came running to hear what Jesus had to say because Jesus made God seem so real and so loving and so kind. But there was another group of people that always came out whenever Jesus came to town, and they were the religious people. Now, the Bible calls them the scribes and the Pharisees, but I call them the scabs and the parasites. Amen. They were the religious people. They were the people who felt like they had God all figured out. They were the people who had all their theological I's dotted, all their theological T's crossed, and they were the people who were so full of self-righteousness. When Jesus came to town, they were always around, but they didn't come to learn anything because they thought they already knew everything. And they didn't come to be blessed because they thought that it was a blessing for God to have them around. And they didn't come to see the kingdom of God breaking through time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. They came to murmur and complain and grumble. And you know, religious people like Jesus are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. You know, every Sunday, I'm at a different church. I'm 48 weeks a year all over the world. I'm in a different kind of church. I'm in Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Pentecostal churches and non-denominational churches. And sometimes I'm in football stadiums like I'll be in a couple of weeks in Mississippi where all the churches come together for three or four nights to reach their county. And everywhere I go, there are always religious people. And I can always spot them. I can spot them. You know, I love lost people, but religious people make me nervous. Amen. And uh, every church having, they usually sit about, you better move over. Amen. I mean, they usually sit about right there. They've been sitting there for 30 years. And their mama sat there before them, and their grandma sat there before them, and that's their pew. And if you're a guest and you just accidentally happen to sit in their pew, they'll stand there and mean mug you until you move over. Amen. I'm talking about religious people. Listen, some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life go to church every single solitary Sunday. They got a face so long, it looks like they can stand straight-legged and lick buttermilk out of a gopher hoe and never move an inch. That's a long face where I come from. Amen. I mean, always murmuring, always criticizing. Matter of fact, every time the pastor comes and says, man, I got a vision to reach this city. I want to fill this building up with every drug addict, every alcoholic, every person who's lost and who needs God. They're always the one to find fault. Well, how much is that going to cost? We've never done it like that. And I don't know if they'll be, be comfortable in our kind of church. Every time I see somebody like that, I want to say, sister, stand up and lead us in a word of criticism. Amen. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because they're always negative and always complaining. It's always been that way. God, deliver us from religious people at Beach Haven Baptist Church. Amen. And so Jesus comes to town. All of the sinners come out to hear him. All the religious people come out. And they notice that Jesus is hanging out with the sinners. Matter of fact, after he got finished speaking, a lot of times one of them would say, hey, Jesus, we're having a party over at my house. Will you come out and just hang out and go to our party with us? And you know, Jesus never turned down a party invitation one time. And it made the religious people very uptight because religious people are always worried about the outside and the forms and the rituals and the ceremonies. And they have long ago lost sight of what really matters. And what really matters is people. And so when they saw Jesus 
hanging out, fraternizing, and even eating because religious people were always uptight about what you ate and how you ate it and whether or not you ate it in the right utensil and whether or not you washed your hands. And Jesus was just hanging out, having fun with all his sinner friends. And when they saw that, the Bible says that they began to complain. And when Jesus heard their complaining, the Bible says he decided to tell them some stories. And look what he says. What man of you, if he had a hundred sheep and lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, likewise, there is more joy in heaven over one prostitute, over one drug addict, over one homosexual person who comes to Jesus than over 99 self-righteous church people who feel like they have no need for repentance at all. That's what Jesus said. And just in case they didn't get the point, he told them another story. He said, what if there was a young woman whose father had given her as a part of her dowry a headband? And this was the custom in this day that a father would give his daughter a headband with ten silver coins. And the coins were very valuable and the father would give his daughter this headband and the ten silver coins as part of her dowry just in case the marriage didn't work out or maybe there was a divorce or maybe the husband died or the family fell into financial difficulty so that his daughter and her children would not be entirely destitute and without sustenance. And Jesus said, suppose this woman and her husband decided to go out with some friends one night and she wore as a token of her daddy's love those ten silver coins in the headband. And when she came in, maybe it was a little bit late, and so instead of taking the headband and folding it up and putting it in its proper place, maybe she just kind of pitched it to the side. And when she did, one of the silver coins was jostled from its setting and it hit the ground and rolled over into a dusty corner and it was lost. Jesus said, what would she do? He said, well, when she got up the next morning to find that the silver coin was missing, she would light a candle and get out a broom and do something evidently she hadn't done in a while. She'd clean her house. Amen. And so she'd sweep and search and sweep and search until she found that silver coin that was missing. And Jesus said when she finds the silver coin, she calls all of her friends together and says, rejoice, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy. Joy in the presence of the angels of God when a church builds a new sanctuary. Is that what your Bible says? If it is, throw it away and get another one. Amen? That's why we rejoice. We rejoice. Now, I thank God for buildings, and you're going to build a building, and I thank God for that, but don't you ever worship that building. That building is nothing more than a wrapper around ministry, and that building is a gift from God for you to fill up with hurting people who need Jesus. And if it's not going to be that, listen, my friend, it would be better to shut the whole thing down than to stand before God and have him say, oh, what you do with that beautiful building and all that beautiful stuff I gave? Well, we enjoy it for ourselves when God's given it for you, listen, to for you to reach this city. Listen, this city is lost. Amen. Half the people in this city didn't go to church anywhere this Sunday. 
In Athens, Georgia, there is drug addiction, and there is every kind of problem in this city that you have in every major metropolitan area of the United States. Every situation that you find in Atlanta, you find right here and maybe even more. And while we come to church and sing songs that we don't mean and listen to sermons that we're not going to do anything with and play church games, this city is going to hell. Amen. God wants to break our hearts over that tonight. And then Jesus tells the final story because he doesn't really want to talk about sheep and he doesn't want to talk about coins. He wants to talk about people. And so he says, suppose there was a man who had two sons. Now, I'm from Texas, so let's use our sanctified imagination for a few minutes and say that this man was a big cattle rancher because we got a lot of cattle ranches in Texas. So he had two sons. He had an older son, and the older son was always seemingly perfect. He had it all together. Anybody got an older brother like that? Amen. He always kept the rules. He always did what was right, at least from all outward appearances. He, he always cleaned his room. He always made good grades. He always said yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, man, and no, man. He had a strong worth ethic. He was always working, always excelling, but he was a bit prideful. He walked with a kind of arrogance. He looked down like the scribes and the Pharisees. He looked down on people, his mom and dad even, and especially his little no good, no account, little brother. So the man had the older son, and then he had a younger son, and the younger son was exactly the opposite of the older son. The younger son never really could seem to get his act together. He was kind of marched to the beat of a different drummer, and the, old, the younger son always colored outside the lines. He always wanted to do things his own way. He never really paid much attention at school because he was always dreaming. of had big dreams and big plans about what could be with his life if he could just ever escape the confines of his family and the the cattle ranch and his big brother who was always criticizing and looking over his shoulder. And so let's say that it came time for the younger brother to graduate from high school. And so he came to his father, Jesus said, what would, what would happen if the younger son came to the dad and said, dad, I think he probably said something like this. I think he said, you know, dad, this cattle business this just not cut. I'm just not cut out for this. And I know my older brother loves it, and I know you love it, and your daddy loved it, and, and I know it's, it's kind of what our family does, but I don't really, I'm not really this. I, this is not what I'm into at all. Dad, I got big plans for my life. And Dad, I'm graduated now, and I think that the thing for me to do, me and my buddies have been talking about it, and I think we can start a business. If we could just get enough capital, I think that there's some opportunities for me in the big city in the next country. And Dad, you're not, gonna, you're not getting any younger, and, and one day you're going to die, and a lot of this stuff's going to be mine anyway. So Dad, I was just wondering if I could go ahead and get my inheritance that's coming to me. And I think when the father heard that, because he loved both of his sons. He loved his younger son. There was just something about his charismatic, dynamic personality. He had a big smile. He flashed that smile, and, and he could charm you. And, and his dad looked at him and said, Son, I understand what you're saying. 
And mom and I have been talking about it, and we've got a plan. We think that if you would stay around here just for a year or two and maybe do some schooling, some more schooling, and, and get a little more education and work here, we think we can find a position that would, that would fit your talents and your gifts. And we just don't think, son, that you're ready to move away from home yet. And the son looked at his dad and said, Dad, I'm going with your blessing or without your blessing. And so the Bible says the dad liquidated some assets, sold some cattle, got the money, gave it to his son. And he said, by the way, son, your mama had a special coat made for you. Nobody's got anything like this. She had it tailored just custom for you, and it's a beautiful coat, and we want to give this to you because we love you. And son, I bought you some brand new shoes. I, I've got some like it, and you always were looking at my shoes, and so I got you a pair of shoes just like my shoes. And son, before you go, I had a ring made for you, and I've got one, and your big brother's got one, and your grandpa had one. It's our family crest, son, and I want you to wear it, and I want you to remember no matter where you are or how far you go, you can look down on that ring, and you can think about home, and son, you can always come home. The boy took the money out of his dad's hand and was about to go out the door. And, and the dad said, son, your mama's in there. She's, she's cleaning up after breakfast and she's crying, son. She loves you so much. Why don't you go in there and just give her a hug and give her a kiss and tell her you're going to be all right. And so the son went in dutifully and kissed his mom and then walked out the door. I don't know what kind of transportation they had back then, day, the, those days. Maybe he got on his camel lack, amen, his camel lack. Come on, work with me, church, amen. He got on his camel lack and he drove that camel as far and as fast as he could go into what Jesus says was the next country. He wanted to get to a place where nobody knew his dad, nobody knew his name, nobody knew anything about him. And boy, when that young man hit that town, everybody knew it. He was a good-looking, charismatic kid, so when he found the local watering hole, he walked in. The place was full. He, 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 he flashed that big smile and began to take the money out. He had that brand-new coat on, that flashy ring, those brand-new shoes. Everybody was saying, man, who's the new guy in town? And he said, drinks on the house. It's all on me. And he had a lot of friends, and they welcomed him, and he spent his money freely and made some investments. But after a while, the economy, the local economy of that city and country began to take a nosedive and he spent all his money and of course when you spend all your money you spend you don't have any friends you lose your money you lose your friends and pretty soon he looked around and nobody was patting him on the back anymore and nobody was talking about how handsome he was anymore and his rent came due and he looked at that coat and said man this has got to be worth something so he sold the coat so he could make his rent and then the, the groceries ran out and he looked at his shoes and thought man I can't eat these shoes and so he sold his shoes to buy some groceries to fill his hungry stomach and the last thing to go was the ring because he was in a different country, he didn't speak the language. And because he didn't pay attention in school, he really wasn't very well educated and equipped in the job market. And he couldn't find a job except Jesus said for one man who was a sadistic man in another country who had a pig farm. And he thought it'd be funny to have a Jew out slopping his hogs. And so here's a young Jewish boy, lost his ring, lost his shoes, Lost his coat, lost his money, lost his friends, and he's out slopping hogs. And every now and then his boss would walk by and smile and laugh at him and said, how do you like those hogs, Jew boy? 
And he was slopping those hogs, and one day he got so hungry that his mouth began to water and his stomach began to growl, and he reached down and got a big handful of the pig slop, and he was about to put it in his mouth when the owner walked by and said, Hey, boy, put that down. You can't eat that. That's for my pigs. And Jesus said all at once, he came to himself. He came to himself. It was almost as if he could smell the biscuits cooking in mama's kitchen. And he could feel the warmth of a nice room that they had provided for him all of his life and the embrace of the strong arms of his daddy. Jesus said, the boy said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up out of this pig pen and I'm going to go home to my daddy. And I'm going to say to my daddy, Daddy, I have sinned against heaven. Everything you've ever taught me, everything I ever heard from you, I went to church and I was taught God's word and we prayed before we ate and I always heard about the God of Israel and I've turned my back on all of it. I've sinned against heaven, Dad, and I've sinned against you and I've sinned against Mom and I'm not really worthy to be your son anymore. If you'll just put me out to work, I'll sleep out in the bunkhouse. you got a bunch of men out there and you always treat them right, you treat them fair, and I'll just go to work for you, Dad, because I'm not really worthy to be your son anymore. And so the boy got up and began to walk back home. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, I don't think that there was a day that went by when that old man and his wife didn't hold each other at night. You ever been there? Your son, your daughter's a million miles away from everything you ever taught them, and it's breaking your heart. And I think they held each other at night, and they cried, and they got down on their knees, and the man took his wife by the hand and said, Honey, let's don't, let, let's don't give up on God. Let's remind God of his promise. And I think they got on their knees, and they said, God, we dedicated that boy to you, and that boy belongs to you. Lord, don't forget us. You said if we would raise up our son in the way he should go, then when he's old, he won't depart. Lord, bring our boy home. And I think every morning after breakfast that old man would walk out to the edge of his field and he'd cup his hand over that hot Middle Eastern sun over his eyes and he'd look out, squint out through those old eyes longing for the day thinking maybe this will be the day when God will answer my prayer and my boy will come home and sure enough sure enough after breakfast one morning the old man went out to the corner of his field and he looked out and up over the horizon came a shadowy figure the closer that figure got, the more the man's heart began to beat and his eyes began to fill up with tears as he said, man, that looks like my boy. I think that's my, he's a lot skinnier than my boy was when he left home, but I think that's my boy. And then that man did something that no dignified Jewish man of his age in that culture would ever do. He girded up his clothes, his loins, his, his skirts around him, and he began to run as fast as those old legs would carry him toward that figure. And the closer he got, the more it came into view, and that was his son and he, the closer he got his heart began to beat and you know he got right up to his son and his son had his little speech all worked out. You know how when we do something we know is wrong and we got to explain to our parents we have our little speech all worked out and so the boy started in with the speech. Father I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you and the father interrupted him in mid sentence and said hey my boy's come home. Hey when my boy left he had some shoes. He doesn't have any shoes. Bring him some shoes and when he left he had a robe. He doesn't 
that have a rope, bring him a robe and his ring's gone. Bring him a ring and kill the fatted calf because this my son was lost and is found. This my son was dead and he's alive. This my son has come home. That is the grace of our God. Come on, somebody, give God some praise in this place. That is the grace of our God. Woo, praise God. Well, the older brother was out in the field working. He's always working, 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 working. And he heard the commotion up at the big house. And one of the servants started heading toward him, and he said, hey, what's going on up there? And the servant said, man, you are not going to believe this. Your little brother who your parents have been crying out and praying and talking about and, and asking God to bring him home. Your little brother has finally come home. Now, he looks rough, man, and I can tell that he's been through a lot, but he's home and he's safe, and your daddy's throwing a party and we're having a big barbecue, and your dad sent me out here to get you to come to the big house and welcome your little brother home. And when the older brother heard that, just like the scribes and Pharisees, he puffed up with anger, self-righteousness. And he said to the servant, you go tell my daddy that I am not coming up to the big house to welcome that no good, sorry little brother of mine home. And so the servant went and gave the report to the father. And when he did, it must have broken the father's heart because Jesus said the father went out to meet the older son. And look what he said. He said in verse 29, Daddy, all these years I've served you. I never transgressed at any time your commandment. I kept all the rules, and you never gave me a party that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, who has devoured all your money with whores and drugs and alcohol, as soon as he comes home, you're going to kill for him a fatted calf. I'm not going to come to that party. And the dad said, Son... You're ever with me, and all that I have is yours. But it was right that we should make merry and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. Everybody say, lost and found. Now, what is Jesus trying to teach us? I think Jesus is trying to teach us that people are valuable. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they look like, no matter what color they are, no matter what kind of grades they make, no matter what they, where they've come from, no matter how many crimes they've committed, look at me, there is nobody in Athens, Georgia, that Jesus does not love and that Jesus did not die for and that Jesus does not think is valuable. Amen? I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. You see, the value of something is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay for it. And you know how valuable you are to God? You're so valuable that God was willing to bankrupt heaven and turn his pockets inside out and give his best, give his son to come and bleed and suffer and die on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven and rise from the dead so that you could become a brand new person. Jesus is trying to tell us that people are valuable. I read a medical report not long ago in a medical magazine. I was in a doctor's office and I was just reading. And some scientists did a study on the value 
of the elements that comprise the human body. So much potassium and all these different elements. And here's what they found out. They said that the average person, if we were to take all of the chemical compounds that make up our body, the average person is worth about 10 bucks. But did you know that you're much more valuable than that to God? Amen. You know what Jesus said? He said the thing that makes you valuable is not how pretty you are or how smart you are or the color of your skin or where you go to school or how much money your parents make. You know what Jesus said the most valuable thing about you is? Your soul. Jesus said what would it profit a man if he could gain the whole world? If you had Donald Trump's money times 10 billion and you could take all the oil, all the silver, all the diamonds that have ever been mined throughout human history and put them on this side of the room and take the soul of a little eight-year-old old girl who lives in the majority world in an African village who will never have shoes or a proper education and Jesus said if you take that little girl's soul and put it on this side of the room, he said what's on this side of the room is more valuable than what's on that side of the room. He said the most valuable thing about you is your soul. Jesus is trying to tell us that people are valuable. Amen. Now let me ask you a question. Are people valuable to you? When's the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? Pastor said this was friend day. Most of you didn't even try to bring a friend. You might have asked one friend that you always ask the same friend, and they didn't say, they didn't come, and so you just said, well, I guess I'm not going to have a friend. You know what? You know why that young lady found that coin? Because she searched and searched and searched until she found it. You know why that man found that sheep? Because he searched and searched and searched until he was able to find it. And you know why some of us didn't bring a friend? Because people, if we get right down to it, people are just not that valuable to us. We care about me and my four and no more and my friends and my Sunday school class and the donuts we eat and the coffee we drink and the good preacher we have and the nice instruments we have and the nice little Baptist church with a country club with a steeple on top and we're going to let this whole city die and go to hell without Jesus. And I'm telling you, my friend, if you do that, the blood of every lost person in this city is going to be on your hands one day, Beach Haven. It's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to be a religious person. It's not enough to know all about the Bible if you miss the message of the Bible. And the message of the Bible is that God loves people more than anything. And if you're serious about loving Jesus, then you're going to be serious about loving people. Jesus has called us to be fishers of men, and most of us are keepers of the aquarium. We just want to hang around the aquarium, hang around the church, be with our friends while the city goes to hell. Within the steeple, the shadow of the steeple of this church, people, listen, there's there are teenagers in this city who are one more heartache away from taking a pistol to their head and blowing their brains out, slitting their wrists. Last year, 800,000 teenagers in America tried to kill themselves. 8,000 were successful. Today, 22 veterans of war are going to take their own life. People are hurting, and we're playing games and wondering about are people Democrats or Republicans and whether they're legal or illegal, and we got our mind on everything in this world except the value of a soul. Somebody in this dead Baptist church say amen. Amen. God forgive us and God help us. People are valuable. Secondly, Jesus is trying to tell us that people are lost. That little sheep was lost. I don't think that little sheep ever thought it'd be lost. I just think that's the way sheep, that's, that's how they roll. I think that sheep one day just 
started looking and noticing there was some greener grass, what looked like greener grass. And so the sheep started nibbling and nibbling and nibbling and nibbling and nibbling. And one day it looked up and it was miles and miles away from the care of the shepherd and the rest of the sheepfold. And I want to tell you, that's the way sin is, young people. Listen to me. I've never met one person who ever, whoever made it their life's goal as a young person to get pregnant out of wedlock. But every 38 seconds, a teenage girl gets pregnant out of wedlock. But I've never met one young man who said the first time he ever took a hit off a joint or ever sucked down a beer or popped a pill, one day I want to be a junkie and I want to be covered in my own vomit in the back alley of some city and I want to sell my body so I can have enough money to get together to get drugs. Well, I've never met one, but that's how sin is. Listen, sin will thrill you and kill you. It will fascinate you and assassinate you. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go, make you stay longer than you thought you'd stay, and make you pay more than you ever thought you'd pay. You know, 85% of the teenagers who graduate from our youth groups go leave the church and 85% never come back for 10 years. We're losing a whole generation of young people out of the church. I told you this morning, Barna, according to George Barna, 9 out of 10 teenagers are not going to church anywhere in America. And I want to tell you one of the reasons they don't is because young people have a strong BS detector and they can tell the moment they walk in a church whether this is real and whether you really love Jesus and whether you really love them, no matter who they are or where they've come from or whether you're just playing a religious game. And when you know why some people don't come to our churches, folks? Because they've already been one time. And they didn't feel the love of God. They didn't feel accepted. They didn't feel wanted. They didn't feel the power of Jesus. We got churches that start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. And the power of God is absent and people don't even know it. They just want to come and play church games while the world goes to hell. And Jesus is saying people are lost. That little sheep was lost because of its waywardness. The coin was lost because it was mishandled. How many people in Athens are lost because they've been mishandled by the church? How many young people struggling with their sexuality have walked through the doors of a church and because they were dressed a little different or because they were obviously effeminate, Instead of loving them and embracing them and reaching out to them and making a place for them, we laughed at them and called them names and made it very obvious that they are not welcome here. We've mishandled them. If they don't drive the right kind of car, thank God for Beach Haven where everybody is welcome and everybody is loved no matter who you are. When you walk through that door, we love you. Amen, church? We love you. We welcome you. We thank God for you. But we've mishandled people. And the young man, the young boy was lost because of his own rebelliousness. And I think it started when he got to junior high, when he started thinking that his, that his friends were smarter than his parents. When his mom told him to do something, he kind of rolled his eyes and thought, man, I don't want to listen to her. And when he started thinking that his dad was old fogey and his dad didn't know what he was talking about, his dad wasn't cool and his friends were cool, and so he started sneaking around behind his mom and dad's back. And coming, he kept coming to church. He always went to church, but he had a different life. He had a different life when he got with his friends. And I know a lot of young people who reach 13, 14 years old, 
and they don't want to be told what to do anymore. I'll never forget a young man that came up to me in my church one time, and he said, nobody's going to tell me what to do anymore, preacher. He said, my parents aren't going to tell me what to do. He said, he called his dad his old man. He said, my old man's not going to tell me what to do. My mom's not going to tell me what to do. The school's not going to tell me what to do. He stuck his finger in my face and said, you're not going to tell me what to do. He said, nobody is going to tell me what to do anymore because I'm leaving in the morning, and I'm going to go join the army. Young people, look at me and listen to me. You better be real careful who you allow to influence your life. Now, I'm not talking about winning your friends to Jesus. I'm not talking about that. I'm here right now because when I was a drug addict, an alcoholic, and a criminal, there were three girls in my high school who reached out to me, and they wept over me, and they loved me, and they shared the gospel with me, and I thank God for it. But you better be real careful who you allow to influence your life because none of those girls would have ever dated me. Amen. And I have a 16-year-old, 17-year-old girl. Her name's Maddie. I hope you meet her one day. Last year, Maddie, Maddie led a Muslim, an atheist, and 20 other of her friends at her public high school campus to faith in Jesus Christ. She's on fire for God. She loves God. But we have a rule in our house, you know, that you can't date until you're 16 years old. And then first they have to come and ask dad's permission. And Maddie's, you know, she was 15 and then 16. And I started thinking, man, you know, Maddie is 16. She's going to be dating, you know, in about 10 or 15 years. I mean, she's going to be dating. And, man, it's a scary thing. When you think about the birds and the bees and the cars and the keys and the mistakes that people have made in dating relationships, young people, listen to me. I'm not so sure that dating is such a great idea at all. But if you do date, if you do date, don't be a missionary dater and don't flirt to convert. Amen. You ought to date guys who love Jesus with all their heart, who are sold out to God, who will pray with you, who will read the Bible. Matter of fact, you ought to take a big old Bible on every date you ever go on. I'm not talking about a little Bible like this. I'm talking about a big old honking Bible like they got out there on that table, like Grandma has on her coffee table at her house, 250 pounds with pictures of naked angels in it. Amen. I'm talking about a big old family Bible. You ought to take it on every date you ever go on. Put it right between you and your boyfriend. By the time that rascal climbs over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he'll be too tired to mess with you. Amen? I mean, be very careful. Be very careful. Be very careful who you date. Be very careful how you, how you conduct yourself, how you dress, how you carry yourself. I was at a youth camp in Tacoa, speaking to a thousand kids. And I looked out over the crowd. There were a thousand teenagers out there, and I couldn't believe some of the way some of these kids were dressed. I mean, I looked out, man, all I saw were legs, breasts, and thighs. Honey, this ain't Popeyes, amen. I mean, put some clothes on your body. Be very careful who you choose to spend time with. Because I know so many young people, and so do you. One compromise. Christians never have a blowout. They have a slow leak. And pretty soon, like the coin, they're lost. Like the sheep, they're lost. Like the younger brother, they're lost. Jesus is trying to tell us people are valuable. He's trying to tell us people are lost. And then listen. He's trying to tell us that people can be found. 
That sheep got found, and when the sheep got found, they threw a party. You know what will cause a church to have a party atmosphere all the time is when people are always being saved, when not one Sunday goes by, when there aren't new converts being baptized, when somebody's coming down the aisle, when you're bringing a friend, a co-worker, a next-door neighbor, somebody that you love by the hand and bringing them to the pastor and saying, Pastor, this is my friend. I led him to Jesus this week, and they want to get baptized. And You talk about a party. Amen. And that's what I'm praying will happen at this church. This is a great church with a great history. But I pray you will not sit on your blessed assurance and wait for the rapture bus to swoop down out of heaven and take you out of this mess. I pray you will rise up in the power of the Holy Ghost and be so full of Jesus that if a mosquito bites you, he'll fly away singing there's power in the blood. Amen. I mean full of Jesus. Full of Jesus. I was in Pampa, Texas in the football stadium for four nights. Over 1,200 people came to Jesus. And there was a little red-headed freckle girl and freckle-faced girl in the seventh grade that somebody told me led 54 of her friends to Jesus that week. 54 junior high kids she brought to Christ. And I said, man, i got to meet her. Bring her to me. So they brought this little red-headed, freckle-faced girl to me, and she smiled real big. And I said, let me ask you a question. Is it true that you led 54 of your friends to Jesus this week? And she smiled, and she said, yes, sir, I did. I said, aren't you afraid of the peer pressure? She looked at me and smiled and said, I am the peer pressure. Amen? I mean, I'm, I'm serious about Christ, and I pray God will use this church to turn this city upside down. The party started when the sheep got found and the coin got found and the son came home and the party. There is no joy like the joy of seeing people come to Jesus. Amen. And that's what I've given my life to. I wasn't raised in church. I told you my story this morning. I was raised in a bar. My mama was a prostitute. I was a drug addict. When I was 17 years old, some girls reached out to me and told me about Jesus And a month later in a jail cell in Fort Worth on my knees, I said, God, I'm sorry. And I walked out of that jail cell brand new. And from that day to this day, I've had one passion in my life. One passion has driven me around the world, and it is to tell people about Jesus and to love people. I've never had a problem loving sinners. It's been my whole life. I've never had a problem loving sinners except for one. When I got saved, there was such a radical change in my life that I didn't want to have anything to do. I hate to tell you this. But I became, after a while, so self-righteous toward my mom and my half-sisters never knew their dads. And my life was about church and preaching, and God called me to the ministry, and God started opening up doors for me to travel all over America. By the time I was in my mid-20s, I was already preaching at some of the greatest Southern Baptist churches in America. God began to open great doors. I met my wife, and my wife and I come from different worlds, man. I grew up in a bar. She grew up in a Baptist preacher's home. My mom was a prostitute. Her dad was a preacher. I got saved as a junkie. She got saved. She had a drug problem. She was drugged to church all her life. Amen. She got saved as a seven-year-old little Sunday school girl. 
And when we met, we were, I was in preaching a revival in Oklahoma out in the middle of nowhere, a youth revival, and I looked over on the piano, and there was the most beautiful, black-eyed, black-haired girl I'd ever seen, and I looked at her, man, when I saw her, the spirit of hubba hubba came on me, amen? I said, oh, man, I'm going to marry that girl. Six months later, we got married, and we started traveling. And God began to open up such incredible doors. I'd stand in football stadiums and civic centers and churches and speak to thousands of teenagers and high school auditoriums and say, man, come to Jesus. And I'd see them come out of drugs and out of alcohol and out of every kind of lifestyle like we still do to this very day. My wife and I'd be in a hotel at 3 o'clock in the morning and the phone would ring. And I'd answer the phone and I could almost smell the alcohol and hear the slur in my mama's voice. She was on her fourth, fifth husband at that time. And she said, I've messed my life up so bad. I don't think I can live. I don't think I can stand it. I think I'm going to take my life. And the first few times I'd try to pray with my mom and I'd do the best I could. And then after a while, my heart got so hard that I finally said, Mom, try not to make a mess. And I hung up the phone and then I didn't answer the phone anymore. I was a big shot Southern Baptist preacher. Everybody knew my name, but I had become a hypocrite and a scab and a parasite and a self-righteous Pharisee toward my own mom. I couldn't hear her voice. The sound of her voice would make me physically nauseous because I was so hurt because as a little boy... Seeing my mom drag in one man after another, I'd be on the bed in the middle of the night and I never got to see my mom because she ran a bar and she didn't come home sometime till one or two in the morning. And so when I heard that old screen door open up, I'd run out of my bed and I'd run through our little house and I'd throw my arms around my mama's waist and I'd say, Mama, I love you. And she'd say, going back to bed, Scotty. And I'd look behind her and there'd be a man that was not my daddy. I'd ride my old bicycle that I got from a junkyard out in front of our house. We were the only white family in our whole area called the Dog Patch. And older kids would come and push me down off my bicycle and say, your mama's a whore. I saw your mama with this man and this man and this man. And there was nothing I could do. And that's the way I grew up, with a bitterness and an anger and a hatred that did not go away even after I got saved. And so after a while, I didn't answer the phone anymore. I never wanted to see my mom. I wanted to be around Gina's family because they were well-educated and they, they were all in the ministry and they made this street kid feel like I had some worth or some value. And so I let holidays go by and I never reached out. I'd tell my wife every now and then, call mom and check on her because even though my wife grew up in the church, man, she loves Jesus and she loves people and she always loved my mom and never judged my mom. But I had a judgmental, pharisaical attitude and I was full of bitterness. One day I was preaching at a church like this, and I gave the invitation for people to come to Christ. And I'll never forget it. It's as real as if it happened tonight. A young lady pushed her way out of the back. She was sitting in the back, and she began to walk forward. She was probably 14, 15 years old, and I could tell she was pregnant and alone and our eyes locked on each other, and she began to cry, and I began to cry. And I said, just come on, sweetheart. I said, Jesus loves you. It's going to be all right. We love you, and Jesus loves you, and we welcome you. Just come on. And she came and gave her life to Christ, and the Holy Spirit stopped me and spoke to my heart like I'm talking to you. And he said, that's your mama. That's just like your mama. 
15 years old and pregnant. And then the Holy Spirit of God said to me, Son, why is it that you can have such grace and such mercy and such tenderness and such kindness and such forgiveness for every prostitute, drug addict, alcoholic, gangbanger in the whole world that you ever meet? You never judge anybody. You love people. But you cannot forgive and love your own mama. And then the Holy Spirit of God said to me, Son, if you do not forgive your mom, I'm going to take my hand off your life and I'm not going to be able to use you anymore because you're so full of bitterness. I couldn't end the service. I fell on my face at the altar, the Spirit of God dealing with my heart. My wife came from the piano. She said, are you okay? I said, i got to get to the hotel. I went to the hotel. I literally went in a closet and shut the door, fell on my face, broken before God, asking God to forgive me. And the Holy Spirit said, pick up the phone and call your mama. And I hadn't talked to my mom in months and months and months. And my mama was always so proud of me. You know, my mama was married a bunch of times, and at this time she was living in Shreveport, Louisiana, and her husband owned a bar, and she was working in a bar, and she had all these girls that worked for it. My mom was the most beautiful woman. I mean, man, when she walked in a room, every head turned. She looked like something out of a movie. She was a beautiful woman, and she would always tell those girls that worked for her, I know my life's messed up, and I'm an alcoholic, and my life doesn't count for much, but I have a son who's a preacher, and he's a good man, and he has a beautiful wife, and they have a little girl. And I know I'm not much, but my son is a real man of God. And when my mom picked up the phone, I could tell she was excited to hear my voice. And I said, Mom. And she said, Son, it's so good to hear you. I haven't heard from you in such a long time. Is everything okay? Is Sarah okay? Is Gina okay? And I said, Mom, everything's okay, but I need to come see you tomorrow. And she said, Oh, son, I'd love to see you. I haven't seen you in such a long time. And she said, is Gina going to come or are you going to bring Sarah? And I said, no, Mom, it'll just be me. And the next morning, I got up at the crack of dawn, got in my car, got on I-20 out of Dallas, and went east to Shreveport, exited Lyon Avenue, went down to the corner of Lyon and Uri, walked into an old Shoney's, and there in the corner, in a booth, two cups of coffee, was my mama. And for the first time in my life, I didn't see my mama as a prostitute who had broken my heart as a little boy and brought such pain into my life. I didn't see my mama as an alcoholic. I didn't see my mama the way I used to see her. For the first time in my life, I saw my mama as someone who was valuable to God for whom Jesus died and who Jesus wanted to save. I sat down across the booth, and I began to weep. My mom said, son, what is it? And I said, mom, I've come to ask your forgiveness. Because I have not honored you and loved you and respected you the way a son, especially a preacher, should respect and love and honor his mom. And my mom began to cry. And she said, son, I know you're ashamed of me. And she said, I know I've hurt you all your life. And then my mama told me something she had never told me before. She said, son, when I was 12 years old, you're grandfather, my dad was an alcoholic. He was a carpenter who was very gifted, but because he was alcoholic, he drank up everything that he ever made and didn't take care of his family. They called him, him and his wife barflies. They'd be gone for two or three weeks at a time and leave my mom when she was seven, eight years old. She could cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner for her three siblings. My mama made it to the eighth grade because there was a godly school bus driver who would park out on the old country road and walk all the way to a barn that they tried to turn into 
into a house and walk in and say, Gail, get up and get Jimmy up and Phyllis up and little Eddie up. You don't want to miss school again. My mama wouldn't have made it to the eighth grade if it wasn't for that man. And my mom said, when I was 12 years old, your grandfather came home and he brought two or three of his friends from work and they started drinking and it got later and later she said, I was 12 years old but I already looked like a grown woman. And she said, they were so drunk that my dad said to his friend, if you want to have sex, there's my daughter. You can have sex with my daughter. And she said, son, that man hurt me. And like one out of three women in America, my mom was sexually abused and molested as a 12-year-old little girl. And she said, son, from that day to this day, I know I've caused you a lot of pain and I know I've embarrassed you and I know you're ashamed of me, but the only way I've ever known to relate to a man is to give them my body. And son, sometimes, she said, sometimes I wonder if God even loves me or cares about me anymore. And I began to weep. Man, I had told so many people Jesus loves you, but I had never told my own mom. And I reached across that booth and took my mama's hand and I said, Mom, Jesus loves you as much as he loves anybody and Jesus wants to come into your life. And she said, do you think he would forgive me? And I said, Mama, I know he would forgive you. And at a booth in Shoney's in Shreveport, my mama opened up her heart and gave her heart to Jesus. Listen to this. And from that day until the day she went to heaven, my mama became the most dynamic, spirit-filled, sold-out, soul-winning Christian that I've ever met in my life. My mama wasn't like most of you. Most of you didn't try to bring a friend today. You never try to bring a friend. You think that you're doing God a favor just to show up at church. You have no burden and no concern for the lost. My mama wouldn't like you. My mama would bring row after row after row of the craziest looking, most messed up people I've ever, I have no idea where my mama found all these people, but she would bring them week after week after week. That was her whole section. And she'd come up to me before church, and here's what she'd do. She'd say, now, son, don't look over there. Don't look over there. She'd say, but you see that? That guy over there, he's all tatted up. This guy had so many tattoos. He had so many face piercings, it looked like he fell face forward into a tackle box. Amen? I mean, she said, I know he's got a purple mohawk, and I know he's covered with tats, and I know he's got face piercings, but he's the maintenance man at my hotel and where on my apartment, and I've been praying for him, and he's come today. So, son, she'd say, be nice today and talk about the love of God. Amen? And then she'd say, see that guy next to him? I know he's got makeup on, and I know he's a He's a homosexual. He works with me at the cosmetic counter at Macy's department store. But son, he got molested when he was a little boy like I did. And he doesn't think the church wants him. And he doesn't think God loves him. But I told him that God does love him. And you're a different kind of preacher. And this is a different kind of church. So son, tell him about Jesus and see that lady next to him. I know she looks hard and she smells like cigarettes. And I know she's had a, she's got a lot of problems. But she's like I used to be, son. She's an alcoholic. But I finally got her to come and I'd see my mama week after week after week take one person after another after another by the hand and bring them to Jesus. You know why? Because the one who has been forgiven much is the one who loves Jesus much. And I tell you, the problem with about half of you backslidden Baptists at this church is that you've gotten over what God's done in your life. It's been a long time since your heart's been broken over the loss, since you've wept, since you've witnessed, since you've said, God, use me to witness and reach my school for Jesus. But my mama wouldn't like that. One day I was sitting in my office and I'm finished. And my phone rang. 
I was sitting at the university where I was the dean of students and professor of evangelism. And it was my wife, Gina. And she said, honey, if you want to see mama, you better hurry up because I don't think she's got long this time. You see, about a year after my mama left Shreveport, she left that abusive relationship she was in, and she moved over to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and helped us start a church that grew from a living room to 1,500 people in nine years through evangelism. We called it a BMW church, black, Mexican, and white. Amen? It was a third black, a third Hispanic, and a third white. Everybody all together because they had come to know Jesus. What a beautiful church. She got sick. And she went to the doctor and they ran some tests. When the results came in, they called in me and my half-sister Shelly who got saved and my half-sister Sherry who got saved and Gina and I and my mama. And the doctor looked at my mom and said, Miss Gail, I hate to tell you this, but you have cancer. And he said, it's very aggressive and it's already spread throughout your body. And she said, I know that, he said, I know you're a woman of faith and we're going to fight this. And he said, but i got to tell you, it doesn't look good. You know what my mama did? My mama smiled and looked over at the doctor and said, doctor, it's okay. I know Jesus. Doctor, do you know Jesus? I mean, that's just the way my mama was. And for the next five years, I saw my beautiful mama. Hair as black as a raven's wing fall out because of chemotherapy and radiation. And my beautiful mama's body began to shrivel up and die before our eyes. My mama lost her health. She lost her hair. You know what she never lost? So she never lost her joy. And my mama never quit coming to church. My mama never missed church until the last few months of her life. My mama would come, and she had an oxygen tank, and she'd lift those little frail hands, and tears would roll down her cheeks as she'd lift her hands, and she'd sing about the grace of God because she knew what it was to be saved. I walked in the room where my mama spent her last days. My mama didn't have anything of this world's goods, but she had everything because she had Jesus. By the way, you're not going to take any of that stuff that you have to have. You're not going to take any of that with you. You do know that, don't you? I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse, amen? You're not going to take any of that with you. You're living for everything of the world just like a lost person when the only two things that are going to last forever is the Word of God and the souls of men. And if you're not spending your time, effort, energy, and money to win people to Christ, then you are literally wasting your life. Some of you are going to get to heaven. You're going to be flat broke when you get there because you have sent nobody. You have no treasure in heaven. you just going with you and your family, and that's it. But not my mama. She knew what mattered. When I walked into that room, there was a thick presence of God. The glory of God had settled in that hospital room. And my half-sister Sherry was crying, and my half-sister Shelly was crying, and my wife was crying, and our daughter was there, and she was crying. Not, not because we were sad for my mama. We knew where my mama was going. We were sad for us. And there was another lady in there that was crying more than anybody, and she was the hospice nurse, and she loved Miss Gale because Miss Gale had introduced her to Jesus, and she was crying. And we all held hands, made a circle around my mama's bed, and my mama, in and out of consciousness, 
And we begin to sing about the love of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God. And heaven came down. And my mama... When my mama opened her eyes, she saw Jesus. Look at me. My old prostitute, four or five times married, we lost count, alcoholic mama is in heaven right now. She's not in the back seat of the bus of heaven. She's not in the projects of heaven. She's not in heaven, the annex. My mama is in the same heaven as the mother of Jesus. My mama is in the same heaven as the wife of Billy Graham Ruth. My mom's in the the same heaven as my mother-in-law, who, as far as I know, never sinned one time in her whole life. My mama's in the same heaven, not because my mama was good. You don't go to heaven because you're good, and you don't go to hell because you're bad. You go to heaven because God is good. And if my mama was right here, she'd be the first person to tell you, I'm saved by the grace of Almighty God. I want everybody in this room to bow your head and close your eyes all over this room. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. And the Spirit of God is moving in this place. I wonder how many people in this room have a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter. I had a prodigal mama. Folks, let me just ask you a question. Is there anybody in this room, you got somebody that you love, and they're far away from God? Is that you? If that's you, lift your hand all over this place. If you have somebody that you love, might be a friend, might be a schoolmate, might be a classmate, somebody that you love and care about, and they are a million miles away from God, lost as a ball in high weeds. They're as lost as the sheep, as lost as the coin, as lost as the sun. And by the way, you know who the most lost person in that parable was? It was the older brother. The older brother was more lost than anybody. He never left the father's house, but he never knew the father's heart. He was just like the scribes and the Pharisees, self-righteous. And I'm wondering if there's anybody in here that would be honest enough to say, Scott, I struggle. Sometimes I think I'm better than other people. Sometimes I look down on other people. I judge them. I make an instant judgment based on the way they look. And I don't even talk to them. I don't even try. God, forgive me. God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Listen, there's not a prostitute in this city. Jesus loves her as much as he loves you. He loves the junkie just as much as he loves you. He loves all of us. And I'm wondering how many in this room would say, I have somebody that I love, somebody that I care about. They're a prodigal. They're away from God. And I want to see God bring them home. If that's you, I want you very quietly and very reverently to get up out of your seat 
And I want you to come find a place you can kneel across the front. Let's turn the front of this auditorium into an old-fashioned Holy Ghost altar like we used to have when we used to get on our face and weep and cry and pray through and believe God for miracles in our families. God, help us. We've gotten away from that. That's why we're not having revival in our churches. If that's you... If you have somebody that you care about, if you want God to break your heart for the lost, get up out of your seat right now and come find a place you can kneel and get on your knees before God and cry out, God, save my dad. God, save my mom. God, save my son. God, bring my daughter home. God, I want you to touch my school. I want you to send revival to my high school. Just get on your face. Where are the tears? Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem, and the Bible says he was moved with compassion, and he wept over it. I think Jesus is weeping over Athens tonight. I think he's weeping over your high school. I think he's weeping over your prodigal. Gina and I had a prodigal son, Dylan, who for 10 years lived a life of everything the opposite of what we had taught him, breaking our heart, said, I don't believe in God. I'm going to live my life, became a drug addict, got arrested three years ago. God brought our prodigal home. He's serving God. He texted me this morning, said, Dad, I wish you could have been at my church. It was awesome. He loves Jesus. God answered our prayer and brought him home. God will bring your prodigal son home. Just come get on your knees and cry out to God and ask God to break your heart. And ask God to move in this church. And by the way, if you have a friend who's down here weeping over one of their kids or one of their loved ones, come weep with them. Come and kneel around them. Put your arm around their shoulder. They won't.